everybody. It's uh, Mike Moore and Dave Fitch back here in the Theology on Mission podcast, where theology meets and engages the issues of culture for mission for Christ and his kingdom. Mike Moore, here we are. I don't even know where we are. Uh, this isn't our studio, as far as I can That's tell. Right. It seems some kind of a, a virtual space of some sort. Uh, this is the first time we've done this. I'm feeling a little out of sorts. How are you feeling? I'm feeling pretty confident about it, actually. Um, I'm at home. It looks like you're at home, too. Uh, I'm at home, uh, although barely. Uh, uh, just, just made it here because home is always chaos for me. Yeah. Yeah, home's pretty quiet, actually, for me. But I, I also barely made it here. I was out to breakfast, but I zoomed back to the west side of Chicago just for uh, the podcast. Well, well, anyways, we don't want to go into all the technological blunders that are sure to happen here on this podcast because of all the new things that we're doing today. We're just going to trust the Lord that everything's going to work out just fine, and that includes technology. Um, but we have a special guest today, don't we? We sure do, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan Tran, professor at Baylor University. Could you give us a big title? I mean, go, go all out. The entire 15 sentences. Who is Jonathan Tran? Well, I am the George W. Baines Chair of Religion and Associate Professor of Theology and Ethics, which is surely a mouthful. <laughs> well, well, John, at least it's, I, I was... Uh, I don't know if I should say this because you're in Texas right now, but at least it wasn't the George W. Bush chair. <laughs> <laughs> it, it would be a far larger chair if it was, uh, if that was the case in Texas. So maybe, maybe I should replace that with, uh, you know, husband of one, father of two, yeah, yeah. Uh, four cats and three chickens, <laughs> which is, you know, surely a Texas household if there ever was one. Well, well we're... Really glad, uh, glad you could make it on this podcast with us today. Uh, and the subject for our podcast is uh, racism. And we've been getting to know your work. I, I say we. Uh, I'm including uh, Mike Moore in this. Uh, and I'm including myself in this. And I'm getting a copy of your book uh, while I'm filling airtime. Um, but the title of your book that came out in October <clears throat> that really got me thoroughly immersed in your work is entitled Asian Americans and the Spirit of Racial Capitalism. But I've also uh, got uh, a few of your articles that I've read since I've read that book. Uh, folks are reading a couple of your articles for our class yeah. on Theology oh, wow. of Church and Culture this coming Tuesday. Uh, and we're digging through uh, the issue of racism and uh, how to think about racism. And then how to engage racism for the gospel. And I just felt uh, your work was uh, really unique, really uh, insightful, bringing insights really that I hadn't seen too many people, if any at all, uh, bringing to the table. And so let's start with how you, uh, uh, I don't want to say define racism, but um, you have a class of uh, two classes you you have identitarian, I think is the way to pronounce it, racism, and racism formed out of a political economic space. I, okay, I just bungled that probably really badly. But how do you, can you describe the difference 
between identitarian racism and that formed within a political economy. Sure. First, I should say thanks for having me on the podcast. I am a huge fan of what you all do in Chicago and for us in the national conversation on these issues. Uh, whenever people tell me, I should admit, whenever people tell me they're reading something of mine, uh, you know, recently, it reminds me, recently, there was a Twitter thing where someone said, every week I've been in seminary, I've had to hear about Jonathan Tran's book. And I always feel like apologizing. <laughs> for uh, But I think it does get to your question, or at least as a way into the question, which is, um, I'm trying to, I'm trying to introduce some different ways of thinking about these questions. And insofar as it's had some traction, uh, it tells me that maybe people are hungry for a different analysis and hmm. out of that analysis, a different set of practices uh, and ways of imagining our world, especially for Christians. And that's what I've tried to do. So the so the book contrasts two approaches to racism. The first one I consider the dominant or even orthodox account of racism. This one is individual. It has to do with, say, stereotypes people have in their minds, bad beliefs about, say, people of color. Out of those beliefs, they operate in unjust ways, right? They discriminate, uh, they stereotype, et cetera, et cetera. In this individualist account, um, things sometimes rise to the level of systems and structures like housing or employment. But the primary culprit here is the individual mindset. If this is what racism is, then anti-racism, as you can imagine, and I'm guessing most of us have experienced, is a set of remedies that are primarily individual that is, we need to correct that mindset. We need to get those mental states, those beliefs, those the bad information people are operating out of. We need to correct them. And how do we do so? Right. Of course, institutional things like DEI training, which try to school people uh, oftentimes by some amount of force, uh, schools people out of the, that thinking. Uh, it may get to the question of structures and systems, but the primary kind of nexus of consideration is the individual yeah, and Jonathan, you just said DEI training, just so our audience knows what you're talking about. Oh, sorry, right. Yeah, I live in this world so much. DEI training is diversity training. DEI is an acronym, stands for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. This is almost universal at this point, and it has been for a couple of decades now in institutions of higher ed, like ours, respectively, but also in almost every Fortune 500 company, uh, every government agency. And, and, and seminaries and ch uh, churches. I, I've been uh, through a couple of different uh, versions of DEI training, being part of educational institutions that are seminaries. Um, would, you would you classify Robin D'Angelo's uh, work uh, as DEI training? Yeah, D'Angelo's work is is maybe the pinnacle and the poster child of the of this kind of movement again, which is some decades old. In fact, her argument largely issues out of her own experience, um, hmm. and so white fragility is something she describes as what happens to white people when be, they become angered by diversity training, and she's trying to diagnose that anger. Um, and th there's a lot in D'Angela that's very helpful, I think. Um, and she does gesture to structures and systems. But at the end of the day, she remains caught on this question of the individualist mindset, say the fragility of the white person. Hmm. And it also leaves intact the idea of a white person. Uh, that is, the white identity is essential, say, to to who the two of you are. It is the most important thing, most salient thing about you. It is who you are and who you will ever be. 
Whereas, whereas the account I'm trying to approach uh, contrasts that, right, w- which I refer to that approach as an identitarian. That is, it focuses everything on the particular racial identity of the person in question and that identity in contrast to other identities, say person of color identities. I try to back up and say, instead of trying to think through particular racial identities and the particular problematic mindsets that relate to them, I try to step back and say, hold on, is this the right way? Is this a wide enough angle to think about Mm -hmm. this? And I really take things like diversity training as emblematic of the problem and say, well, insofar as DEI or diversity training, A, tends to not work and B, tends to be counterproductive, what can we learn about that? Uh, we can continue to put heat to the fire on these questions, right? We can continue to bring more heat to diversity training and get upset when people don't change their minds like we thought they should and grow increasingly frustrated that structures and systems are not shifting. In fact, they're going in the other direction. There's greater disparities now than there were in the past. Instead of doing that, I try to think, well, is this the right set of questions? Maybe we need to reframe this. And so I basically think the individualist mindset that folks like D'Angelo are associated with uh, largely has it backwards and for for reasons of convenience. Hmm. Uh, Yeah. um, So um, just to um, expand on this identitarian approach to dealing with racism, uh, I have friends, I have people who I follow on Twitter. I have people that I read who think that uh, they're working against racism by ex- by exposing and teaching and confronting people on the structure, systemic structure and ideological construct of whiteness, white supremacy. And they think, if I can just get these people to understand their problem... Uh, and I think many of them are humble enough to say they're part of understanding this problem. I will solve the problem. What you're saying is not necessarily so. Is that right, John? Not necessarily so. And I would argue what's necessarily going to happen is you're going to, you're going to deepen the problem. The DEI analysis, the DEI approach, the approach that says, Uh, These are questions of, say, diversity, and we need to have better mindsets, better feelings, say, about people of color, and then worser feelings about white people um, as a way to get into white supremacy, which I fully both believe in, and it's clearly around us. I think that was clearly on display this last weekend to horrifying effect. But I don't think We're talking about Buffalo, New York, folks. Uh, We're probably going to be a week away when this hits. So yeah, you just talked about Buffalo, New York and the uh, shooting uh, replacement theory shooting by this person in Buffalo, New York, just, just to keep everybody on tack here. Sorry. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. So I think questions uh, approaching the question of white supremacy in an individualist, individualist way and say, creating a class of people called white people that we are then collectively meant to attack as if that will destabilize the larger reality, I think is misguided. Again, what seems so right about it is the political heat we bring to it. And if you're a progressive liberal like I am, right, and you're and you have proximity to white supremacy, 
uh, let's say you're you know racially identified as a white person, and then let's say additionally you're Christian, that is, you already have built-in notions of get sin and guilt, then the discourse is going to be very persuasive to you. And you're going to actually think that feeling white guilt about these things is doing work. Well, maybe my evidence to the contrary, right, is the fact that we've been doing a lot of stirring a lot of white guilt in diversity trainings for some decades now. Uh, that doesn't seem to be touching the larger realities. So I'm asking, what are the larger realities? If racism isn't this individualist, identitarian reality, then what is it? That's what I try to ask in the book. And if it is this other thing, then how do we begin to tackle that? And what I come up with um, is a much broader analysis with much more sweeping uh, resolutions and remedies. Now, what I mean by it's convenient to think the other way is the sweeping res- I mean, resolutions and remedies are much more pervasive. They're going to require much more of us the ki- than the kind of individualist work we tend to do. Hmm. Uh, okay, uh, Dr. Tran, uh, I've just decided we're going to hold off on the second part of this analysis for the second half an hour, which will be another podcast. So let's keep focusing on identitarian racism and uh, the way it works. And there's part of what you're saying uh, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but you're saying we're <clears throat> maybe you're saying that we're centering whiteness as a construct to define the problem so that not only do white people get further ensconced in their own identity as whiteness persons, but the people who are fighting against the racism of whiteness get defined in relation to the same whiteness and the whiteness, the white supremacy actually doesn't go away. It gets further deepened into our ideological ways of thinking, being, and, and structuring life. And we don't get rid of it. Um, Did I, am I, because this drives me nuts, but. (laughs) You uh, mean this, this, that reality, you've observed it, you've witnessed it, and you've been frustrated by it. Right. It's the more we uh, make uh, it the problem and we must, uh, uh, in essence, equalize other racial identities in 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 relationship to white identities, we can't get rid of the actual problem of whiteness and white identitarian politics. And uh, so so did I, I. I really think people need to try to at least understand it. I think it's so difficult and counterintuitive to the way most people are thinking about racism today. Can you say if I have at all uh, uh, been close to what uh, a problem you're locating and maybe expand on a little bit? Yeah, that's exactly right. We reinscribe the problem with our anti-racism. Our anti-racism, which now is uh, seems to be focused, maybe fixated on whiteness, on the evil of white people qua white people, there's some essential quality about them, something that endures, it interprets itself, it has its own meaning, this thing called whiteness. Think about the language, the term, it suggests a kind of substance, maybe even a metaphysical substance. Mike and right, Mike and David can escape their whiteness, it's essential to who they are. Mm-hmm. That whole language is a reprising of race language as such. Right. It's just race language from the other side, but it's still got the same categories. It just flips them around, but it doesn't at all question the race category. 
I mean, the way I try to think about it is this. I don't think I want to be part of trying to suggest to white people that the most important thing about them is that they're white. I think white supremacy and white nationalism has done that for hundreds of years. Why would I give further fuel to that type of thinking? What I want to do is destabilize white categories so that then we can see the ways of its attachment to structures and systems also need to be destabilized. That's how we destabilize those unjust systems. We don't further double down on race identities, right? The the logic that you described is one I try to get to in the book, which is this double move of elevating other races and then undermining white race. But again, it's the same categories. In some sense, you're moving the pieces around. Maybe the best way to get to this is a story I tell at the end of the book about Noel Gnaishev. Uh, Noel Gnaishev is, I think, believe Noel Ignatius might be from Chicago, but he did his, um, he went, he went to school at UPenn and then he was such, he was so committed to uh, social democracy and recognizing the ways inequality, one killed people and two killed democracy. The only way in which people would be lifted up against these systems that were killing them. So Ignatius dropped out of UPenn, you know, which is quite a thing. And he went and worked in steel factories uh, maybe in Chicago, actually. I think that's where he ended up in Chicago. But what he realized in the steel factories is what he discovered was what he called a white chauvinism, right? So he thought if you went to the factories, what you would find is oppressed white people and oppressed, oppressed black people working hand in hand under the terms of oppression. And he thought as soon as they recognized that oppression, they would unite and fight against the, the structures of labor and, uh, and property, But the white chauvinism, this thinking that white folks had that they're white and that their true enemies are black people, kept them uh, from the most basic possibility of their own liberation. And so he wrote this book, which became quite famous in the 1990s, called How the Irish Became White. His point was to his white brothers and sisters is that white is not something essential to who you are. That's something that was imposed on us as a category to justify the world we live in. And the world we live in is one of dehumanizing inequality and oppression. He thought if he told the story to his white brothers and sisters that you're not actually white and you actually share much more in common with black coworkers, black family, I mean, black family, black neighbors than you thought then there was a possibility of a kind of revolution. Hmm. So he wrote this book, and then there's this haunting tale that I relate at the end of my book, where Ignatius writes this book, and you know, 30 years on, almost literally at his deathbed, he confides in a former student that he was shocked what happened to his book. Instead of the book being used to show the instability, the social constructiveness of white identity, somehow it re-essentialized it, or at least the people who read it, right, in critical whiteness studies, used it, deployed it in a way that seemed to further thicken the very reality he was trying to shake us loose of. Um, and, and that's where we live right now. We live in a kind of world um, where we kind of perpetually get stuck in the very frameworks we're trying to get out of. We perpetually get stuck in the very frameworks we're trying to get out of. Um, <clears throat> I, uh, uh, I I think this is so worth exploring, unwinding. Uh, 
Mike Moore, uh, uh, if I can ask you a question. I think a lot of our friends, a lot of people we know, even a lot of people we don't know, um, get certain, there's something they get out of the the uh, culture war of of what we've been talking about, identitarian racism. The pointing out of the evils of whiteness, white supremacy, and by the way, with Jonathan and Mike, I, we all agree this systemic issue and problem not only exists now, but has existed for several hundred years, at least in the United States. But, but we get certain pleasure and self-worth and identity ourselves mm-hmm. out of, of this antagonistic war that we get embroiled in. And maybe that's part of what keeps it going. Yeah. Comment, Mike Moore. Yeah, this book has been massively helpful in giving language to something that I've intuited for a long time, but just lacked the vernacular to actually label and describe what I've experienced. About 10 years ago, I started working at a large, uh, I guess it was over 10 years ago, uh, a large uh, university here in Chicago. And every uh, fall, we would have microaggression, microaggression training, anti-racism training. And as Jonathan said, it provided some really helpful frames for me. But I was always struck by the fact that after the training, we would go to the presidential ballroom and have uh, hors d'oeuvres and cocktails and happy hour. And I was acutely aware of the disparity between myself and the other higher ed professionals and those who were um, serving us, those who are catering. And the language of microaggressions and anti-racism, it didn't address what I was experiencing there. And I think, Jonathan, this is what you call um, a matter of convenience. And can you unpack that a little more? That experience that I was having, what is happening there that was a matter of convenience that allowed something not to be named that was economic? Yeah, I mean the convenience is super powerful and, and, and David has it right. It comes with almost an aesthetic pleasure. Uh, That's how deeply embedded we are in it because it comes with its own sense of goodness, truth, and beauty. But these are distortions of convenience, right? It's much easier to think about the individual mindset, white guilt, the white individual than it is to think about things like housing uh, think about things like societal wide realities and of employment. I mean, the, the, and this thickens the plot, right? The DEI culture, diversity training culture is largely a matter of convenience. So let me give you a little bit of a broader history. Diversity training came up in the, in America and in say the UK in the 1960s as the government in the U S context desegregated uh, and tried to enforce greater forms of equality uh, institutionally, UK was doing the same thing under, you know, the worst acronym ever, RAT, RAT, Racial Awareness Training. <laughs> but what was happening during this time? See, it, and what's scary is the way that this stuff now just stands in for anti-racism. It just assumed that this stuff is after justice. But no, it's really after convenience. And let me just be clear. Mm-hmm. This is no charge uh, or comment against those individuals committed to this work who are, to me, some of those most courageous uh, creative people I know, 
but they are just working with this, a framework that is going to make sure that they continuously bang their heads against the wall. Hmm. Diversity training came up at a time in American history, right? So this is the 1960s, early 70s. What ha had happened? Well, there was a number of worldwide freedom struggles around questions of gender, indigeneity, uh, certainly around race, imperialism, capitalism. And so the world was being shaken at its foundations because the world, the modern world as we know it, was built on those things. And so these freedom struggles threatened all of this. So what happens? Well, in the 1980s, right, largely under the, the stewardship of Margaret Thatcher in the UK and Ronald Reagan in the US, you have a massive backlash, a recommitment to neoliberal capitalism, right? Neoliberal capitalism is uh, the market and the government in bed, each recognizing they cannot survive realities like the freedom struggle without getting further in bed with one another. Yeah. And so this is a doubling down of a deal we had made with ourselves in the 1950s and 60s. The banking industry would be the background, backbone of all of this. No matter what happens, we're going to support the banking industry. We just saw this again, of course, after 2008. So you have the banking industry. You also have the growth of a carceral state, the imprisonment mostly of right, people of color, black and brown folks. But the carceral state, this is documented recently by friends uh, Josh Dubler and Vincent Lloyd in their book, Break Every Yoke. The prison and police industry, right, is largely tied to proprietary regimes. In other words, the protection of property under the name of law and order. Uh, this is all happening in, in tight relationship to the banking industry because the banking industry is for the, in large measure about financial speculation, largely around issues of property and housing. So this is all going on. You have some decisions by leaders of the freedom struggles that they basically have to make a concession. Are we going to go after large scale inequality or are we going to try to reduce things to identitarian terms? Because maybe that's the only thing we get. And that's the decision that's made. This is recently documented in an essay by um, Tory and, and Adolf Reed. Um, and so you have all this stuff. In the academy, as you both know, then there's a turn, a cultural turn away from material analysis to the, quote, logics of culture. Hmm. And so you have all this stuff going on. And then what, what this allows is a shift in the way we think about freedom struggles. The freedom struggles in the 60s and early 70s were clearly about structures and systems, right? We're talking about capitalism, imperialism, racism, gender inequality, et cetera, et cetera. Those are structural and systemic questions. But these larger cultural shifts allows all that then to reduce down to individualist accounts, identitarian accounts. That becomes the birth of DEI. So mm -hmm. DEI is a convenience. It is a way of allowing these structures and systems to continue while at least giving the semblance of a commitment to justice. The thing is, you can get more diverse but the diversity may mean not much more than our elite institutions become more diverse. Yeah. Oh, so good. And, and, and the elite institutions become more diverse, but they, they really don't change. They're they still don't change at all. They, in fact, they become worse because we think we feel better about them. They're still, they're still operating systems of massive inequality and oppression. But because what you have a couple Asian dudes um, at the table, you feel better about it, right? It makes it a happy form of injustice, right? That's the kind of problem that we've been trained to think our way out of. Hmm. Yes, uh, and this is so important, and we're gonna we're gonna wind this up here uh, soon. 
Uh, and, and we're going to bring Jonathan back for uh, next podcast on the solutions to these problems or at least proposed avenues for the church. Uh, but, but, but uh, you know, uh, I, I do a lot of thinking on ideology. I, my, my break in uh, my avenue into the work of critical theory and ideology was uh, Slavoj Žižek and then Chantal Mouffe and some of these other uh, post-structuralist thinkers. And I, I kind of started to understand that when something gets extracted out of everyday life, um, we Christians call that discipleship. And it turns into a belief that we now use to uh, kind of uh, uh, what, what Mouffe calls uh, antagonism. Uh, we, we use it to, uh, and we get embroiled in these antagonisms of culture that kind of go nowhere. And, and of course, Zizek would say they're empty at the core. Um, this is what happens with racism. We extract the actual issue of whiteness, uh, the exact, the, the, the issue of race. We extract it, we turn it into an ideological uh, idea and we use it to get our identity and to foist other people into the same identity to get something out of it. And by the way, it keeps the existing system intact. And for those of us who are privileged, those of us who have nice houses, it doesn't include you, Mike Moore, uh, those who have a nice library in their house, definitely does not include you, Mike Moore. But but seeing Jonathan's library and my library, we, we I, I digress. What happens is, it, it, so race doesn't become part of our discipleship, our daily life restructuring. The way we actually live, it becomes this ideological, um, uh, antagonistic stuff that we get involved in that keeps us above the fray and keeps the underlying economic structures in place. Uh, and I think that's what maybe you're getting at, Jonathan, in your work, or at least something close to it. And the Sorry to go off on a preaching rant here, but you can't take the preacher out of the professor, only the professor out of the preaching. Uh, but you, if we're going to get anywhere, we've got to bring the issues of race back into our discipleship. Comments from either of you two on my crazy rant. Well, for sure. I mean, this stuff uh, provokes and needs rantiness and of the preacherly <laughs> variety uh, will help us. That is, how do we tie this into the gospel? Part of the problem with the diversity stuff is that it has its own account of discipleship, its own kinds of faithfulness, right? And it and it has things like uh, it's just got built-in virtue signaling uh, parts of it. Virtue yeah. signaling comes to finding out someone's racist or pointing it out um, publicly, maybe through our social media accounts. And then what that seems to broadcast to everyone is, no matter what, I'm certainly not a racist. He is. Um now, I may be sending my kids to private school, uh, right? I may be divesting people of property. Uh, I may be participating in banking systems. But, you know, I'm not a racist because I said so on social media. That's the kind of individualist account that we are now kind of running into perpetually. Mm -hmm. This is what I mean by convenience. I mean, another way of thinking about this has certainly been a live question in Chicago is how do we think about the police, Right. BLM 2, Black Lives Matter 2, summer of uh, 2020 in the middle of COVID, right, is a serious societal question that could have been a question uh, of a generation. Is the police and prisons, are police and prisons the best way to deal with inequality? We've seemed to decided yes as a society. What BLM 2 allowed us to do is raise the question, 
Maybe there are better ways. And then this leads to then basic material questions about resourcing, allocation, and access. Right? That's the kind of conversation we need to have as a society. If we don't, then it just becomes entirely too convenient to blame right, the police as such or a single police officer. Now, make no doubt about it, Derek Chauvin and those folks who killed uh, George Floyd right, got what they, we needed to give them. But to turn around and blame the police without those of us, without also turning the, uh, the light on those of us who benefit from policing, and then to make a hero out of the very justice system that is incarcerating black folks yeah. for generations, that's what I mean by convenience, right? We mm-hmm. lean into the law and order proprietarian regime of property that we all benefit from, or a lot of us benefit from, right? And we join our diversity crusades. We think we're doing anything. We're mostly virtue signaling. That's so good. Um, Dave, Oops. you want to you wanna wrap it up and we can uh, talk about the solutions next time? Yeah, um, folks, uh, a lot to think about. Uh, I just want to uh, recommend, by the way, it's, it's, it's a... Uh, it's a steady, thick read. It's going to take some focus, but it's well worth it. Asian Americans and the Spirit of Racialized Cap- Racial Capitalism, Jonathan Tran. He's also got some uh, good articles out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so uh, I just highly recommend the book. We're going to have Jonathan for a second uh, podcast here. Uh, we're going to talk about maybe how the church can get involved in some solutions. Uh, Mike Moore, do you have any announcements to make uh, upcoming events that people can still? I do. Yeah. Uh, three weeks from now, Willie Jennings come into Northern Seminary to deliver the annual theology and mission lectures here on the west side of Chicago. So I'll drop it in the show notes, but sign up because uh, space is filling up, actually. Uh, space is filling up like physical space is filling up fitch so we're oh yeah we're super excited to have dr jennings we're gonna have this is gonna be really a uh, real live in-person event eh? that's right and Fantastic. uh, uh your cohort is filled up um but cohort what are you talking about uh for the doctoral program oh yes it is and by the way jonathan tran is teaching in that cohort yes yeah we are privileged and honored to have him super excited do- with us, and uh, I think we're going to do another cohort, but not till possibly the end of 2023 is for a start. If you're interested, get it in the queue for that. We'd love to have you. Yes, it's where this kind of uh, talk goes goes uh, not only deep but goes practical. So uh, join us in the doctoral cohort. Well, that's it for theology on mission podcast uh, for this uh, moment in time, and uh, we encourage you to leave a review. Uh, do do an, uh, a nice, outstanding review on the platform wherever you listen uh, to us. We'd appreciate it. Until then, it's over and out. It's Mike Moore and Dave Fitch. See you next time. Thanks.